What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have a special guest, Josh Field, who is a master food formulator. He's also just jacked. I see him at all these conferences. He's got bigger arms than me, so had to get him on the podcast and see what he's doing because it's working for him. Without further ado, how are you, man? Good. Yourself. Thanks so much for having me on, Robert. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So so dive into a little bit of, of your history, what brings you to the keto space. I mean, I've seen you, I run into you at all these conferences and you're always at one booth or another and you, you know everything you're talking about. So what, what got you into the low carb space to begin with, man? Uh, kind of a loaded question with that. Um, kind of give you like the back 411 history on me. I've always been somewhat of a health and, and fitness junkie. I got involved into um, really working out. I mean, going all the way back into like the early 1990s, I, I can remember waking up excited to watch working out with Sean Ray, you know, Saturday, Sunday mornings mm-hmm. and different things like that. So I got into it at a young age. I was always fascinated with with big muscles and veins. There's always something, you know, superhuman about that. And um, throughout the years through just kind of like, you know, being a sponge, trying to learn everything literally as fast as possible um, in this space. I've done everything from bodybuilding to cross training to um, more endurance-based sports. And and with that, my primary fuel, my primary driver was high protein and high carb and of course, just like trace fats, you know. But um, Mm -hmm. about six years ago, my wife and I, Victoria Field, um, we have two little Pomeranians and one of them, she was bitten ahead when she was a puppy. And uh, we almost lost her. She had to go in a decompression chamber for about a day and a half. It was like the only way they could keep the, the swelling down. She essentially had to learn like how to walk again and do all that. She had to go through like doggy therapy, if you will. And one of the potential outcomes that the veterinarian had told us about was, you know, it, it's possible depending on how, you know, her, uh, her uh, cranium develops, she may develop um, seizures, epilepsy. And sure enough, about two years later, uh, she started developing like grand mal seizures and whatnot. And of course, at the the time, Victoria and I, even though we were air quote, you know, healthy in the way that we were eating, um, we, you know, we thought we were being good pet parents. You know, we had, were buying, you know, like the $60, $70 bags of, of pet food, the organics and all that stuff at the pet store, you know, making sure that she had a sound diet and we ran through the gamut of various anti-convulsants and the side effects from those were i mean they were absolutely horrible they were atrocious i mean almost to the almost to the extent of you know like a chemo patient she lost her hair uh, the pigment of her skin had turned color a little bit and it was right at that point in time that we were becoming friends with the founders of quest nutrition this is back in 2013 2014. And, you know, we, we'd randomly talk with them. If we were down in Los Angeles, we'd go out to dinner and whatnot. And they were telling us about one of their projects that they were working on was called Keto Pet Sanctuary. And long story short, with that, essentially, they wanted, they're going out to, to various kill shelters, trying to find dogs that had naturally occurring forms of cancer. And they're taking them out to this ranch in Texas. And essentially trying to treat, combat the cancer using the ketogenic diet. So they're telling us all about that. So Victoria and I, you know, we, we really looked into it because we were just desperate because of the, the condition that our dog was in. We honestly, we thought that we were potentially going to lose her. You know, the, the, the seizures were so horrific that it was going to shorten her, her lifespan. So we hopped on a, a ketogenic protocol with her and literally everything completely changed in like a day and a half. She went from having multiple seizures a day um, and all of a sudden now she was having maybe like a tremor a day. And I was like, oh, my God, like this, this is absolutely crazy. And the only thing that we did was was change the food. So after like a few months, I was like, maybe I should try this type of a diet because I was eating seven, eight times a day, you know, traditional bro bodybuilding protocol, you know, super high protein, mm-hmm. high carbs, low fat, like what I was saying. But I saw the health effects that I was having on my dog. So I was like, you want to know what? I'm going to try it. And this is just about six years ago. And 
I haven't gone back since. Um, <laughs> once you get used to eating butter, eggs, and bacon, and fatty cut meats, it's it's really hard to go back to the boring and bland rices and egg whites and oatmeal's and and different things like that. So that's that's kind of what led me down um, the path that I've been right now. I've, I've been very fortunate enough to have been surrounded with and and worked with a lot of the pioneers um, in the space, and it's it's kind of crazy looking back to how everything started just about six years ago to where we're at right now it's it's absolutely insane the entire movement that's happened from um the food products that are available now to the daily conversations that a lot of us are having to the amazing expos and conferences one of which being um my wife victoria's the and dr angel poth and her business partner dominic dr dominic d'agnostino you know, just really collating all these researchers and scientists and pushing the entire movement forward. It's it's super, super exciting for me. So that that's, pro that's probably, probably a really long-winded um, response for that. But I think a lot of people that get into this space, it's, it's always fascinating to hear their whys. It's like, why did mm -hmm. you do this? You know, whether it's something like, you know, my wife and my situation, you know, from a medical standpoint to some people just starting out utilizing it to, to lose body weight. But I always like to hear the whys. No, absolutely, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. Most people follow a certain lifestyle diet and then their, their, their dogs are, you know, they feed their dogs something similar, whereas the inverse kind of happened with you. you. You were feeding your dog and recognized how, you know, they benefited from it and decided to jump into it as well. And then the rest is history. But it is amazing how the implications of this diet and lifestyle can have such a profound impact on everybody involved and, and so much more so than just the nutritional aspect, but the community aspect. And we talk about it, like I talk about it on all this on all the podcasts, you know, the, the community aspect and how, how it just keeps motivating you and inspiring you to keep pushing forward and, you know, digging even deeper into, um, you know, the, the, the research, the people that are involved, but it, it's pretty, it's pretty profound. It's pretty amazing that uh, a way of eating could could be the vehicle that creates such a such a movement yeah absolutely if you think about it though you know there really there are three big conversation points that people that they like to attach themselves to and, and all of which are somewhat controversial but when it comes to politics science and religion it's easy to kind of associate nutrition to politics it's easy to associate it as somewhat religion and of course it, it is science related and then when you have like such a huge movement that's happening right now i mean literally the fda the usda they're kind of going back removing their former stance on what the food pyramid essentially should be so when you have something that's creating like so much buzz and of course human beings being these well us being these community oriented species we love to you know, attach ourselves to that greater movement, you know, whether it's something that's good or bad in this situation, of course, it's, it's something that's really, really good. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of leading us back towards somewhat of a ancestral pathway. It's a little bit frightening looking back essentially to what we've done to ourselves in the past 100 years. So I, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's, it's it's very very exciting time for all of us. What do you think? I mean, I, I talked about this on a, a couple podcasts back, but we got to the politics and kind of where you know the keto space was heading, and I think we're all in agreement that it has to come. You know, it's it's a grassroots movement coming from the bottom up, um, you know, from within as opposed to top down. But you know, with with you having the experience you do in in you know food product manufacturing. Um, you know, marketing of food products, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's not, I mean, there's money to be made in the keto space, but it's not like, um, I think selling a whole wholesome food is probably not as profitable as a lot of these, you know, engineered foods that are cheaper to produce. Um, and the same goes true with like pharmacology, but what do you see happening and what kind of do you see happening at the moment, uh, you know, real time with these companies that have been in existence for the past hundred years and are having to kind of you know do a whole 180 degrees turnaround it's it's inevitable that it's going to happen if you look through history whether it's you know um rulers or 
great organizations that have heavy influence to various things, everything for the most part is cyclical, you know, so we were led, you know, by monetary agendas to eat essentially certain ways. I mean, people are profiting from it. There's always some form of uh, agenda with a, a lot of these. Um, maybe the best way to say it is, you know, prophecies. So when you have like mm -hmm. these big food companies that have been, you know, dictating the way that we eat, the way that we socialize, and they're getting this disruption, exactly what you said, from a grassroots bottom movement, and especially with the noise that we're making right now, it's like they have to pivot. Um, so I personally find it very, um, very energizing. Um, I think that it needs to happen. I don't think we'll ever go back to the way that we were eating. I think that it's going to continue to be a slow transition. Um, right now, it's, it's very buzzed. I don't know if we're at the peak of the entire keto movement. And to be honest, I don't even know if in another um, six, seven, 10 years, if we'll still be using the term keto, you know, it simply just might be a way of life, a way that we, you know, we eat. I don't think that we'll ever, you know, end up going back to trace fats and high carbohydrate type of a diet. Um, but mm -hmm. big brother, they are, they're paying attention. And if they want to continue to be in the picture, they have to pivot, they have to move. And that's why some of the shakers in the space, you know, one of which um, Primal Kitchen, uh, Mark Sisson, huge uh, thought leader and influencer in the space, he saw um, essentially an opportunity to get in, to have products that taste really good. Uh, for the most part, they did replicate, you know, some of the not so good for you condiments and dressings that were out there and said, hey, you can still have the same flavor profiles, however, in a healthy ingredient manner. And because of the amount of noise that he made with that, you know, craft, um, they came in. And I, I think that it's inevitable. Some people, you know, they, they may turn their shoulder at that, but I see that as an opportunity. It's like you need these small food companies to get in there to create the noise. And we can continue to drive, you know, the, this entire food movement forward, um, grassroots. But at, at some point, it's like, I do think that we need these well-structured organizations to really to push it all the way through. So I don't see it as a, as a bad thing. You know, it's right, right now is like the perfect opportunity. So whether it is something that is, you know, a consumer packaged good, like your keto brick or like some of the other, you know, amazing low carb keto companies that are out there. It's like, get out there. You know, if, if you're making something in your kitchen that other people find tasty and is maybe somewhat junk food like analog, then get in there, you know, have fun with it, make some noise. It, it makes it, it makes a diet that much more attainable, you know, for people that are having a hard time transitioning. I do think that you already are starting to see a little bit of demand. Some people, they are demanding more keto whole foods. I don't exactly mm -hmm. know how that's going to play out. Um, I have talked with literally in, in the past four weeks since the metabolic health conference with four different food companies that are essentially trying to get in the space. You have like all of your meal prep companies that are out there, but with that, they're still targeted towards either the bodybuilding community or their perception of health because they put bright, vibrant colors and marketing and they're fresh consumable. Or now you're seeing, seeing people, companies that want to actually be formulating, you know, a lot of your whole food type of meals. Yeah, I think, I don't know, it, it's, it's often viewed as a negative, you know, when you're scrolling through the grocery store and you pick up something that's kind of questionable, it's kind of marketed towards keto foods or, you know, keto dieters. And the ingredients are not really optimal for keto. Like they just haven't hit the nail on the head yet. But even that is just so far and beyond above what the alternative is. And even if these larger companies haven't got it figured out yet, just simply knowing that they're moving in that direction should be viewed as a good thing by us all. Because, you know, a, a bag of chips that has less processing than, you know, your standard bag of Doritos is still a step in the right direction. And I think. You know, the more the more ways we make, like you're saying, with these smaller companies getting in there and and getting some market share, like 
we can't be ignored for long as these bigger companies and they're going to do what they're going to do to make money. Um, and if they see and recognize an opportunity to make money in the keto space, they'll focus their efforts there. Um, which at the end of the day is a good thing. You know, it, it's, it's, I can see how small companies could view that as a negative, like more competition from people with deeper pockets. But at the end of the day, as long as more people are eating the, the right way and the community as a whole is getting healthier, I mean, that's, that should always be viewed as a positive. Um, what do you think? This is totally kind of off on tangent, but I'm curious to get your opinion of it. What do you think about like large scale ranching and uh, like the meat supply? I mean, I've talked to a few people lately about what's a healthy alternative, um, not to meat, but a, a sustainable way of obtaining that meat would be. And that's a question that's kind of baffling, you know, ketoers and, and non ketoers alike, because it would be hard to produce enough meat at scale. From what I've been able to find out, anyways, um, if if the community as a whole was going to go more towards a higher meat, higher red meat style diet, yeah, I, I I understand the question, and my initial reaction to that is, if we go back to ultimately what's what's the end goal, and this kind of circles back to what you were just um, stating prior to asking the question that you just asked, it's like, well. Even though some people that haven't they haven't hit the nail on the head just yet with the formulations, and I know that there are a lot of uh, low carb keto evangelists that are out there that have somewhat kind of taken the role of you know being like the keto yay or or nayer you know in the space saying this is not keto, this is keto because of this one in particular ingredient but i I don't know if that's the right mindset right now i ask myself well really what are we trying to do what, what's the objective and in my my personal opinion i think the objective is simply just to consume less processed sugars so even if you have mm -hmm. big brother getting into the space and they're using a replacement sugar alcohol say like um, a maltitol or something like that it's it's still moving the needle in the right direction you know, it, it, it may not suit, you know, personal ethics and, you know, dietary preferences for each individual, but it's an attempt and it's still furthering the entire movement. Yeah, they'll eventually, they will get there. But I think as more people as they start to transition the way that they consume foods from mass, you know, uh, carb sugar consumers, it has a hormonal hormonal effect in the body too. It's something that you've probably Absolutely. experienced. And I think anyone, if you were to ask anyone that has done keto, whether they do it long-term or if they do it intermittently, besides, you know, the increased mental acuity and, and, you know, all those other things that come with it, I think it's maybe safe to say the majority of the people, they will say that they eat less frequently and that they eat less. So going back to the question that you asked, my knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, in theory, we're really not going to need as much. I can be the first one to admit, you know, in, in my bodybuilding days, I would sit down and I had no problem hammering down like a bolus amount of meat. I'm talking like a pound and a half where now, because there has been some hormonal changes with me, and oftentimes when we do eat, we're also eating it with other uh, calorically dense foods, whether it's butters, it's avocados, etc., you you fill up faster so for sustainable farming i think that if we continue to move in the direction of this entire movement i think people they're, they're not going to be needing to eat as frequently and especially if it's coming from farms that are practicing sustainable farming that truly care about the carbon footprint that they're uh that they're essentially that they're impacting or that they're leaving it's also more nutrient dense as well um i don't know if that necessarily answers your question um but i i just don't see us i guess having to consume as much as we currently do simply just because of hormones does that answer the answer the question yeah no that's that's a really good point i mean the the amount that americans especially consume on a day-to-day -day basis just blows my mind like it's and, and not even what they consume but what they throw away i mean it's just it's saddening it's sickening to see how much food is just wasted. And then we have these discussions about sustainability and how to make sure that we can even produce enough food. But then you see all this waste 
it's pretty disheartening. I mean, I, I, I personally like whether it's ethics or whatever, I, I don't, I don't like throwing away any food. Like I only try and have in my fridge what I can consume before it goes bad. I feel like that just, I think that's the goal that anybody should have. Yeah. And I also think that, I mean, really, if you think about it, let's, let's get a little bit hypothetical too. This may be a little bit crazy, but you know, 40 years say that this entire movement, you know, it has a huge impact. We put a huge dent in the entire uh, food paradigm with big brothers and whatnot. You know, if, if we decrease the demand for a lot of um, the corn-based products, not just corn itself, but corn is often used as an origin with other products and ingredients as like the derivative for like simple carbs, fibers, etc. It's also going to leave mm-hmm. an opportunity to start replacing some of those heavily cropped um, agricultural fields with, you know, more space for, for farmers to get in there and start starting to replenish that soil, you know, with cows and, you know, they're essentially their, their waste product, the manure, you know? Yeah, that, that's a good point as well. I think, you know, if, if I'd, I'd be interested to see some of the statistics to see what the, the trends have been doing with regard to agricultural farming versus, you know, uh, you know, ranching for you know, cattle and beef and whatnot. Um, but that, that's, that's been on my mind a lot lately, because I think, as the the tide turns a little bit away from these processed foods, there's going to be that increased demand for quality meats um, and a decrease. I'm hoping for all the corn and soy based products, which have just through science shown to have some pretty pretty impressive negative effects. Um, so as long as we're moving in that general direction, I think we'll figure things out as we go. At least I hope we do, anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree with you. It's to be honest, I I don't think it can really get much worse than what it currently is. I think maybe the bigger picture is, you know, how how does this transition from just what's happening in the US and Europe to other continents, you know, speaking specifically about Africa? Um, a lot of what sometimes what happens here, it's in support. It's like, well, what's the cheapest way to be providing, you know, food calories to less fortunate individuals in, in other countries. But that's, that's something, you know, maybe a little bit different, but at the same time, it's, you know, those that are making the, the, the decisions for the sustainable farming, um, acts, they also need to be thinking about that just because it's logistically it's it would be ideal it's like hey if we could you know ship over um fresh organic you know meats that would be ideal but it's just not practical i i think that there's a lot of high level conversations that that do need to take place but i don't think it can get really much worse than the current situation that we're in yeah the current situation is pretty bleak for sure yeah um what about uh, so so these food products that that you know you've worked alongside of in the past? What what are some things that you see, um, like with these health bars? You know, you talked that you've worked alongside Quest and and other companies. Do you do you feel like they're doing a pretty good job in looking at the the research? Like you think they're pretty adaptable with the new science that's coming out, or are they kind of like a big ship that's hard to turn? No, they're, well, they're, they're definitely each year, um, they keep experiencing growth over growth, but at the same time, I mean, the why of, of Quest Nutrition is to take products to the market that taste really good. First and foremost, taste is, is always going to be king, but second to that, that are also metabolically advantageous, um, and not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, suiting a specific dietary protocol. Um, but I personally have been there uh, during a time when they did transition from what they thought was a fully um, non-digestible fiber source in their cash cow product, which is their, their, their bar line. And through some extensive research, you know, realizing that the type of fiber that was being used was actually somewhat digestible. And then through even further investigation, it, I mean, basically it's, it's the fiber that they were using was fully digestible. And their whole thing is, you know, low net carb and, and still is to this day. So when they found that out, I mean, literally it was like an abrupt stop of, of production and a pivot. 
And that was something that was really, I think, eye-opening to me is that, I mean, literally these guys are on, you know, the cusp of, of innovation, especially with, with food technology. Some people, they may not necessarily agree with um, some of the food products for, you know, um, dietary ethos. You know, they still do use some sucralose. I know that some people that they're not huge fans of sucralose, um, but I mean, really, it, it, it comes down to options. You know, well, what's the impact that that trace amount is having on me? And then depending on what your answer is, then it's like, well, if it has it and it doesn't suit my my preference and don't necessarily consume it. Um, but as a company continues to grow and I can't necessarily speak for them right now, I can tell you that, you know, because of the size and the popularity that they are from an ingredient supplier standpoint, just about everyone they want to work with Quest. So as the suppliers, as they're innovating and coming out with you know, better polyols or more bioavailable, you know, proteins and raw formats and this and that. Essentially, big companies, they get first pass at it, you know. And when I was there um, running business development and doing food formulation, you know, I can't tell you, you know, how many times throughout the day. I mean, half, three quarters of my day was, you know, taking meetings, you know, sitting down with suppliers and Oftentimes, they were pitches of this and that, you know, so they're going to continue to innovate based on what their needs are with the latest and greatest, um, really, ingredients that are out there. And that, that's something that absolutely I love about Quest is they really do care about the health impact that their products are having. Do you recall what, what the fiber was that they were using that did have the impact? Uh, it was isomaltoalgosaccharide, IMO specifically. That was that was actually the the second fiber source that they used. Originally, they started out with inulin and chicory root, and for specific reasons, they transitioned from that over to your IMO, and then they transitioned into um, immediately pivoting. I mean, so much so that the uh, the reaction to the IMO, there was an interim. Um, soluble corn fiber that they were using that we found out a few months later that was having um, a less than pleasant reaction in the bars. So then it transitioned to another type of insoluble corn fiber, but uh, this specific air quote fiber was was IMO, which is actually, it's, it's quite interesting because the FDA um, last summer, they revised essentially what meets the standards of a fiber. And that mm -hmm. was one of those, you know, um, prior two fibers that didn't make the list. And, in, and sometimes it can be can be very confusing to those that are like really trying to getting into understanding ingredients on labels is oftentimes you have ingredients that fall under trade names on labels. It's like a perfect example is you may have and there still are companies out there that are using IMO but it's falling under the trade name as a prebiotic fiber, and which is something that's really easy to, to switch out. You know, so it's like they can kind of hide behind certain things. Um, but it's, it's, it's good to know that that was something that was recognized. And for those that are currently using that, I believe it's, I think they have an 18 or 20 month grace period from the time that was mandated. So I think it's sometime in 2020 that if they are using it, uh, if they are using IMO or um, a fraction of IMO, it'll have to be moved from fiber into full carbohydrate um, content or value. Are there any other lesser known ingredients that, uh, you know, would, would, would be a shocker to some, anybody that might be listening, what they think they, they know what a certain ingredient is, then they find out, you know, after the fact that it has a totally different effect. Are there any other you know, misleading ingredients that people should be aware of that come to mind? Not immediately coming to mind. That was like the big one. That really was a big one. And, you know, it's kind of funny how looking back, you know, my wife and I, we've, we've had four, three different, three different actual fitness companies from group training companies to personal training companies to online nutritional coaching. Um, and we even, we, we, we founded uh, co-founders of an NPC show. 
um, back in, in Central Oregon. But when we were doing uh, nutritional coaching, this is in 2012, 2013-ish, right in there, we were using um, Quest Bars, and at the time they were using the IMO, and we weren't testing glucose levels. But we noticed mm-hmm. that at, at a certain point when an individual would stop getting, you know, they'd stop making progression and leaning out, we would remove the quest bars at some point that was like the, the last indulgent thing that you know they would necessarily have in in their dietary protocol and we would remove that and there would almost be like an immediate response from that so we started questioning looking back or like well i wonder if that was because they were actually digesting it and it was almost equivalent to say you know keeping in that extra you know 20 grams of carbohydrates or you know more so to like anyone in the, in the bodybuilding space, that's, that's like a half a cup of oats just because it's still a slow digesting carb. Um, but nothing really pops out in my mind, something that is misleading. I think that there are ingredients that companies are using um, that are multifunctional, which sometimes can mm-hmm. be a little bit confusing. Like a perfect example would be um, dextrin. There are some companies that they list dextrin is a fiber source, which sometimes it's often it's confused with dextrose. So if you're a keto head or a low carb head, you're like, I can't have dextrin because it's it's dextrose, and they just don't understand the difference between the two. But dextrin specifically has like four or five different kinds of dextrins. So you have a resistant starch dextrin, which falls into a category of its own. You have um, alpha dextrins. You have beta dextrins. And then you have highly clustered dextrins or in the bodybuilding or in the, uh, the sports performance carb space, your um, highly branched cyclic dextrins. Um, so it, I, that's the only one that necessarily comes to mind. But for those looking at it, it's like sometimes if you're not specific enough with the type of, with, with the ingredient that you're actually putting on um, a label, it can be a little bit confusing. And that's, it's actually one of the things that I'm helping companies out with, with right now is, you know, making sure that the ingredients that they're using, it's, they're putting their best foot forward, being as hyper-specific with the type of ingredient that they're using. That way, it's not as confusing to the consumer. Yeah, I think, you know, as far as consumers concerned, the the keto space is very hypersensitive and and focused in on that, which is, which is good. It kind of keeps these companies honest. Um, there's still a lot of ignorance out there, but for the most part, like it's, it's, it's cool to see companies striving to not mislead their end user. Um, what do you think about sweeteners? Like there's a lot of different sweeteners out there now, a lot of, you know, natural sweeteners, man-made sweeteners. Do you have like a preferential sweetener that you would suggest people gravitate towards? That really comes down to what, what and when the person's trying to achieve. I personally, I there are some artificial sweeteners like sucralose. I personally, I, I don't mind sucralose. I don't take, I don't consume a massive amount of it. Sometimes I'll literally put just enough sucralose on one of the tips of a fork. I mean, literally just enough, one of the tips, whether it's a four or five prong fork to put in my coffee to use it just because of how potent it is. So I personally, I really don't mind sucralose. Um, I know that there's a lot of controversy. It's like, does it have an impact on blood glucose levels, this and that? Um, but if a company is using that, going back to what what is the big picture? You know, getting someone to consume, um, say, say they drink four or five cans of Coke or, or Pepsi a day, you know, which has sucralose or like other sweeteners in it, to get them to drink, say, a beverage that has zero carbs, but it still does have that artificial sweetener. It's like, well we're still moving in the right direction. Um, but for like some of like the, the very sugar alcohols that are out there, I would say hands down, you know, right now, the best one is, is probably erythritol. And then with that, there are a bunch of different iterations of the, the types of erythritol. I'm going to put myself on the hot seat here. Um, what would you critique on the keto brick ingredient list? Like if you were to, you know, look at that formulation, where does it fall short? Where are there holes? Like, is there any negatives that that glare at you from that perspective off the top of my head <laughs> um 
use flax, right? Uh, in some of the bricks, the the coconut cream we just launched does not have any flax, but the other ones have flax. Yeah, I, I would have to have the entire the entire ingredient deck in front of me, but I do. From what I can remember of the bars that I've had, um, seeing flax on there, and it's it's not that flax is something that's it's an amazing, you know, for like an insoluble fiber source, absolutely incredible, very healthy for you. Once you know those um, essential fatty acids are broken down, they oftentimes they can convert into you know um, various sex hormones. But using it in formulation, depending on if it's ground or if it's whole seed, the chemical makeup of flax, it's not necessarily a stable fat. Mm -hmm. So with time, you, you put ingredients into formulation and the chemistry, it never stops. There's always interaction, things are changing, et cetera, this and that. Um, so depending on what your shelf life is for the brick, I, I, I can't recall off the top of my head. That might be one ingredient that you might want to take a look at just because oftentimes flax um, and shelf-stable products, they can start to go rancid. And then with the rancidity, it can be discoloration, um, potentially a Maillard type of an effect. Um, it could alter um, the taste of it. That's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head without actually having the product in front of me. What's what's the best way to test that? Just like have a keto brick and set it aside for a year and literally bite into it and see how it tastes. <laughs> literally, I mean, the, you can fast track. I mean, you, you can put it into you know accelerated aging and incubators, different things like that. But I mean, really, it's it's something as simple as you make a, a batch of bricks. You take three, four bricks. You put them aside, and depending on what you think your shelf life is. You know, you start pulling at 50% of that, 75% of an actual, and, and then maybe even take it one step further. But I mean, it's, it, it, it's not anything like too scientific or complicated. It's exactly that. You, you look at brick A, you look at brick B, you taste brick A, you taste brick B, have a handful of people do it. Is there a difference? No? Okay. You actually, I, I do take that back. One thing for the flax that you could do is you could send it out for third-party analysis to actually to test um, um, lipid peroxidation. Others, uh, that would maybe be like the one technical thing that you could do with your, um, with your, your bricks, your, you know, your A's and your B's, but other than that, but oftentimes you will taste it before the actual peroxidation sets. in. so if you do taste something, especially for you, the formulator of it, so you're highly sensitive to the way that it's supposed to taste. If you see something and you're kind of questioning yourself, send it off for lipid peroxidation. And then depending on that, whatever your tolerance is, then obviously you'd make a decision on it. Yeah, I was, I was pretty, I was hesitant to include flax because there's, there's so much research out there about flax, the pros, the cons, the positives and negatives. And I didn't really know what outweighed the other. Um, I spoke with Allie Miller. She had, she sent me a, a research document that showed, because uh, like a lot of people argue that there's a lot of estrogenic effects of flax, um, like negative estrogenic effect, effects. And then she was so, I'm totally going to butcher the research, but basically the, the flax mimics a lot of the natural receptors so close so that it helps, um, it helps negate your body producing too much estrogen or something or accepting, I'm not sure I'm butchering it completely, but it had a positive impact in the hormonal regard. Um, but I never considered it from like a, the, the fats breaking down and becoming rancid. So I'll definitely check into that um i've eaten some of the first bricks we made and they seem to just be a little bit harder but they don't have like a, a negative taste um to them i will say this though man like i after doing the keto brick and learning as much as i have from it i've got so much respect for for you and others like you that you know do this for a living and just are diving into the the formulation of food products because it is so much more of a challenge than, than people think at first sight um I mean, and, and things happen that you can't even prepare for, have no expectation for. One time we were making a batch and we got the cacao butter too hot. Um, and we didn't think anything of it because, I mean, it's just it's just a fat, you know, didn't think anything of it. So I poured it in and I think what had happened is it scalded the protein powder that we had mixed in there. So that batch tasted terrible and we didn't know at the time. So we shipped it out and we started getting these emails like, oh my gosh, what is this going on here? 
And so I had to track down everybody that we shipped that batch to. And then I sent them more bricks. I was just like super embarrassed, felt terrible about it and had no idea. But then like I tried a brick from that batch. It was just like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want to eat this either. Um, so since then, we've basically been like, you know, keeping close eyes on all the temperatures, things that you wouldn't think to even pay attention to at first glance, but have a huge impact. Oh, yeah. It's in part of that. You're right. It's like you don't know what you don't know. And I mean, of course, you, you could implement certain QAQC processes and protocols when, when you're making those. And most likely you had an, an instance in which you're like, oh, crap, maybe we need to, you know, start tasting these before we ship them out. But sometimes it's until it happens, you know, you're not necessarily too quick, you know, to, to do certain things unless you don't, you know, know exactly what you said. It's like after the fact you went back, you're like, oh, wow, maybe this doesn't taste great, you know, but yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it is, it's, it's one of those classic sayings you, you live and you learn. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're small first getting into the space or if you're a large company. I mean, Anytime that you do make changes to a formulation and you can have amazingly great, you know, food scientists and chemists that are out there. And even, even so, I've seen situations in which we have outsourced to, to certain food scientists to help us out with certain formulations in which there's a high level of certainty that based on their knowledge and experience, they recommend something that's going to fix a specific product. And then it still has an adverse reaction just because oftentimes the type of formulations that we're, we're doing, we're implementing into the various you know, consumer, consumer packaged goods, it's new. None of us are using sugar. Sugar is like a staple when you're making anything um, in the low carb to keto space. So it, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's trials and tribulations. You just learn. Is a new frontier for sure. So what about... Um... Like uh, like these big co-packers, you know, like a lot of companies will, will go off and they'll use a big co-packer. Is it pretty common that these co-packers that kind of have the economies of scale that they do, they just, they they try and bend the formulation a little bit to use something that's better suited for their needs as opposed to perhaps the the, the needs of the, the company? I have heard um, some horror stories, um, but speaking from experience, as long as you have someone in place that's managing and dealing directly with, with your co-mans, a lot of that can be mitigated. You know, you, you have to remember that when you're transitioning over to a co-manufacturer, that you're the customer. I mean, ultimately, the customer, and it's, it's your formulation, you have control over that. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's not necessarily bending to do something that might be more beneficial for them especially if say it's like a turnkey operation and they're sourcing, supplying the ingredients and you're paying for everything and all that you're doing, they're paying for everything and you're just paying for, you know, the unfinished product. With that, it really just comes down to guidelines and parameters. Um, so if you go in there with someone that is used to dealing with co-manufacturers, you know, there's like a level of expectation. You go in there, you establish what those parameters and expectations are. And then if there's like something, um, if there's like a processing has something to actually do with the equipment and it does call for a formulation change, then either you can take it upon yourself, you and your team to make that formulation change, or you do it collaboratively. You know, you work with them based on, you know, whatever the, the potential processing issues are i agree you have to kind of take responsibility the book stops with you yeah absolutely i mean really the big takeaway with that is it's it's your product it's your formulation um and then at the same time too it's like there there are so many different co-manufacturers that are out there with various capabilities you know you may go with one that surface conversation they're like oh yes we can absolutely do this and literally speaking from experience you go and you do a pilot run, you realize that, hey, your formulation doesn't work with um, with their equipment, even though the finished product may look exactly the same, but the ingredients that are being used, the processing of it, you know, it alters what the finished product looks like. So don't be afraid to, you know, to speak with multiple co-manufacturers. You know, it's like, it's like when I'm going to circle back to Quest. Um, they went to bar manufacturers 
in which they were doing hundreds of thousands of bars, but because of the ingredients that were being used to form the finished product, the bar, they couldn't find anyone initially in the beginning that could actually produce the finished product bar. So that's why they started, you know, their own manufacturing plant. And even with that, they purchased pieces of equipment. And then one of the founders, he was making alterations literally on the spot to the equipment in order to make it work, you know? So just don't, don't confine yourself to, you know, one co-man, have multiple conversations. And then of course, if needed, you know, outsource, you know, bring someone onto the team that has experience, you know, dealing with these certain types of things. I agree. Yeah. I mean, having, having full responsibility over it, no matter what direction you take it, I, I never would have thought, you know, at the onset that we would even make this physical product that we are now, but we, we've kind of opted to keep it in house. Um, and man, there's, there's so much to be said for that too. Like, I, I love it. Like there's so many challenges you face, but I've got respect for Quest, you know, now knowing that, that they kept it in house because they wanted it done to a certain standard and nobody else was offering it what to the extent that they wanted what they could find. So they, you know, did what they had to do to produce it internally, which is, uh, there's a lot to be said for that, I think, you know? Yeah. And, and then of course with that, there, there are definitely pros and cons to that. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, you, you're right. You do have autonomy control over that side of the operations and, you could potentially be a little bit more stringent with your QA, QC processes, but at the same time, you know, some of the side effects of that are a laundry list of cons. You know, we won't go into those, but that's just like with everything else in life. I mean, there, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. So it's really a matter of, well, which, which battle do you want to engage in? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, with you, with you, you know, being keto and kind of totally out of left field question here. Um, but with you eating keto now coming from like the bodybuilding style background that you have, um, have you noticed any adverse effects from like a, a muscle building standpoint? Again, totally <laughs> changing directions in the conversation here, but yeah, no, um, you know, surprisingly I haven't. Um, so to be completely transparent with you and, and everyone that might be listening is when I started keto, I, I started keto but I wasn't necessarily keto. It took me a while to transition just because I was so afraid, you know, to lower my protein low enough. I mean, I was such a high protein consumer. I mean, it was almost insane looking back at it now. It's just like, I can't believe how much protein I was actually consuming in a day, but it did. I mean, it, it took mm -hmm. me almost six, seven months to bring, to bring my protein down low enough to a point in which I was actually starting, you know, to have, decent moderate you know ketone readings but you know i was so afraid that i was going to atrophy my performance and, and at the time i was still actively competing i haven't competed in seven years now but i was still in the mindset that i was going to compete again even though i did transition over but no i mean i i personally i don't think that i've atrophied um if anything i've maybe leaned out a little bit more um same exact thing with strength. Um, initially, there was a little bit of a dip, um, but right, my right. my my endeavors changed. Where I was like, well, I don't care about bench pressing, you know, four hundred five anymore. I don't care about squatting this or that. So I, I mentally, I had kind of moved past that. But speaking from where I am right now, it's my numbers are exactly the same, if not maybe a little bit better. You know, so. If there are people that do questions like, oh, you can't gain muscle, you can't uh, competitively compete, you know, on a ketogenic type of a diet, it's for the most part, it's been disproven. I know that there are a couple of different labs out there that have looked at this. I know that Dr. Jacob Wilson, they've looked at it from an endurance standpoint. It's been validated time and time again that, you know, a ketogenic diet, a well formula ketogenic diet can be extremely beneficial for those. Um, types of endeavors. Do you think, you know, I feel like you've had a pretty good, you know, behind the curtain look at like the, the supplement industry, the, uh, you know, the food product industry as it relates to, you know, marketed towards performance athletes, like all the GNCs out there. Do you feel like a ketogenic diet would ever become mainstream on like this higher level competitive stage, like, like a Mr. Olympia stage or not so much? I think that is a bit of a stretch. 
Um, yeah, possibly. I, you, you're definitely going to have some. You're going to have some outliers that I think that they will do it. They will attempt it. Um, somewhat of a modified, you know, kind of like a Dave Palumbo or, you know, Dan Duchesne or anything like that. They were huge low-carb advocates. Were they in a state of ketosis? You know, and that's another thing too, actually, I'm going to kind of go off, um, veer from the, the path a little bit is I think sometimes people, they get confused and I mean, really what can lead to a ketogenic diet, you know, sometimes just a large enough caloric deficit. I mean, technically you're in a state of ketosis, you know, in which would that, uh, depending on how severely calorically restricted you are, you can still, you know, reap from some of the same benefits of more of much higher fat, more of um, um, adequate caloric intake or something like that. So you might have individuals that are up there that are, you know, higher protein and maybe using some fats, you know, for energy and maybe for hormonal support, but, you know, suppressing their carbohydrates. Some of them, they might be in a state of ketosis, but, you know, it's, it's a matter of, well, did they get on the stage approaching you know, their macros from like a one-to-one or two-to-one or something like that, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know in conversation with you that you've done it. And I, I think like one of my, the very first comments that I made with you, uh, your your fiance, she was uh, showing us uh, some pictures before we actually met. Um, I think it was at a, a KetoCon last year. And uh, your glutes are all mm-hmm. ripped up. And, you know, just in small talk, you were like, yeah, I, I did it. And like my fat consumption from a caloric standpoint was actually higher than my protein, you know, and which that kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, that, that seems kind of tough or almost impossible, but you're that N of one that did it. So how come someone else can't do it? You know, and <laughs> I, I think I was calling you like buns or glutes or, or, or something like that. Cause I was like, dude, he got, he got ripped up you know, with a super high fat diet. So yeah, I, I think yeah, it might happen. I remember that. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I think at, at that point, my, my fat was like 145, I think and my protein was down to 65 grams. So definitely heavily weighted on the fat side. Um, it, it's interesting though. I feel like the bodybuilding space, they're just so biased against the higher fat ratio. They're just so, you know, entrenched in their traditional philosophies of having to have higher protein to be able to sustain muscle and looking at carbs as being muscle sparing that I feel like of any demographic, they'll probably be one of the latter groups to consider the keto diet in its true form for a competitive, you know, prep strategy. But I know we're, I'm trying to move the needle a little bit in that direction. Yeah. And you want to know why I, I don't blame you. It's like, and I, I know that you coach athletes as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, the more people that you get that are doing it, you continually to increase what that pool size is, you know? So it's like, you're the N of one. So if you do get another competitor up on stage that has very similar results, I mean, and, and truly is in competition shape to do, get that information out there, allow for other people to see that. One thing that I think is going to happen maybe prior to that um, is, kind of like your your post-competition phase. I think that you're mm-hmm. going to get more and more people that are understanding the importance really of why we all need fats, you know, for hormonal health and all the other benefits that come along with it. People that are going to use the ketogenic diet to renormalize, to get back to that homeostatic state using the ketogenic diet than, you know, like a, an air quote, reverse diet in which everything is brought back in moderation. I know that there's been a couple of different studies that have looked at this and um, the the two different cohorts, you know, you had one that did a reverse diet, you know, keeping protein at a fixed number. And then of course, weekly bumping up um, in small amounts, the, the carbohydrates and the fats compared to um, the other cohort in which same exact thing, you had your protein held as a constant. They kept their carbohydrates still minimal at trace but they focus primarily on their fats. So the weekly increase in calories came from the fats, and they saw that the cohort that focused mostly on adding calories from fats 
that the time recovered back to um, actual true homeostasis was like almost half the time that it took the other cohort to do it. So that was like an eye opener to me. Um, I think I first saw that like three years ago. And if I were still helping uh, competitors out with, with diets and whatnot, that, that would definitely be a conversation that I would be having with, with all my clients. Um, I found that very eye opening. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, you know, the, the competition prep and like the peak week and like when you're, you know, sub 5% body fat, that gets all the attention. That's in the limelight. But for me, what was the most eye-opening and the most convincing that, okay, this is, this is you know, there's something here was the, the, the post-competition phase. You know, like normally and in the past, I, I'd gained 20 pounds in 24 hours post-competition just on, you know, binging on a big refeed meal after the show and gaining a whole bunch of water weight and just looking terrible and feeling terrible. And I didn't have any of those negative repercussions uh, with the ketogenic diet. And I feel like it's because my hormones, you know, they, everything's going to be affected when your calories are that low, no matter what diet you're using, but they stayed much, much more stable, um, you know, following that ketogenic approach throughout the contest prep and then post-show with the reverse diet that, I mean, that alone just sold me on it as a lifestyle for competitors because I've seen so many horror stories of competitors just, you know, battle eating disorders post-show. I'd battled eating disorders post-show. I just screwed myself up. I've seen so many others screw themselves up. So if you know, I can help push the needle in the right direction there and, and offer this as an alternative to the traditional dieting method. I think that's 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 a positive impact I hope to at least make in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially for all of us natural athletes. I know that you're a lifetime drug-free mm -hmm. athlete. I was always a lifetime drug-free athlete, still am today, even though I'm non-competitive. Um, and same exact thing with, with my wife. Um, it really does have such a monumental impact post-show, the importance of just getting fats in there. I didn't necessarily, I didn't fully understand the benefits of it at the time, other than I knew that fats, when we were doing um, our competition prep, we did competition prep, that was one of our companies, from 2000, 2008 to 2014, uh, we ran an online business. And we, we thought we were quite savvy in the early days, Victoria and I, you know, we were like one of the, the very first ones, at least to what we um, are, were aware of using like Skype back in the day, you know, so we didn't want to focus just yeah. on, you know, our direct community. You know, we had clients, you know, across the country, we had clients in other countries, which was really cool. But going back to what I was saying is like, I knew that there was, there, there was an importance in the fats for hormonal purposes. However, mm -hmm. I wish I would have kind of gone all in, you know, because the mindset back then, you know, coaching clients was, all right, let's get those, let's get those carbs back up. And usually my approach, regardless of the approach to get the competitor lean competition lean, it was immediately right out of the gate, post-show, I would always do 30%. That was just kind of like my default. Then, of course, depending on how the, ind the individual responded to that post-show, 30% of total calorie intake was immediately um, was fat. And then based on that, how the person responded week to week, you know, I would bump carb up a little bit or maybe bring fat up a little bit. But, you know, like what we we're just talking about, right out of the gate, I probably would have set fat even higher than that and focused, but would place much more emphasis on bringing the fat up higher and higher and higher, you know, just to, to bring them back, especially for guys. I don't know about you, but um, the handful of natural competitive male bodybuilders that I, that I knew up in central Oregon, big thing was libido. If libido is down, that's kind of like a, a confidence dump. You know, so it was getting, yeah, you just have to kind of like go into it knowing that you're not going to get any action there for the last few months. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, no pun intended, but getting that back up, you know, getting back to where, you know, it, is, <laughs> it essentially should be, you know? So, and of course that's I mean, really, it's going to come from initially, it's going to come from, you know, the effects that the fat has on the body. And then like what you said, you know, just overall getting those calories back up, pulling out of that deficit. Yeah, absolutely, man. It, it's it's so cool, kind of like what we were saying earlier about the food, you know, like you live and you learn, but there's so much, how there's so many parallels between the foods we eat, the way we perform, the science, the research, the religion, like you were talking about earlier, 
the the politics. I mean, it's all intertwined, and it all presents an opportunity to learn and just dive deeper and deeper. And it's just addicting, man. Like I love it. Like I love meeting people like yourself at these conferences and having you on the podcast now and just diving into your brain and seeing what your take is on certain things and just constantly learning and growing and being better tomorrow than you were today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I oftentimes I like to talk about, um, Victoria, we no longer help competitors out, but if there's a bit of information that, you know, if I were to say, I wish I knew then what I know now, going back to those, especially, you know, like you, because I know that that's one of the things that you do do. One of the things that I would have implemented is using what oftentimes us keto heads do every single day, which is testing glucose levels. So whether or not you're mm -hmm. on a low carb diet, say you're taking a client into competition where their primary fuel source is carbohydrates, still, especially kind of like that, you know, I don't want to say peak week just because truly if you're lean enough, you know, there's no reason to really to, you know, do anything that's, you know, you know, extreme. But oftentimes when you're kind of going through that loading phase, as I thought of this a couple of years ago, it was kind of like an epiphany when I first started doing them glucose and ketone readings. I was like, there's no better way to really to see if your body's partitioning those carbs. Because oftentimes you see competitors in the last 48, 72 hours, they're just stuffing their face full of carbs. But what, are they, what else do they do? They completely drop their salt, they drop their water. And you don't have mm -hmm. those two other compounds that are required for partitioning of that. So if you, if you were to take a blood glucose reading, you would see with time through multiple, you know, pokes and readings that blood glucose is still really high. Like nothing's actually going into the tissue. So something's off. You know, that's like one of those things I thought about. I was like, you know, if I'm still doing that, like I would have probably all my clients telling me what their blood glucose levels are. Because that's like an indicator of, you know, what nutrient partitioning looks like, what's going on. Like you actually have a metric, you know. I mean, you, you just made two really good points there. That and then also the fact that if you're as lean as you should be, there is no need to have like this, you know, really just extravagant peak week strategy. There's so many competitors that, you know, do not stay on top of things or they have a, you know, poor-minded coach that has them doing all these crazy chaotic manipulations last minute expecting a miracle to happen and all that happens is they spill over and look worse than they did three weeks ago um and that's, that's honestly one of the beauties of bodybuilding i mean it's like literally a science experiment but if you do it right and give yourself enough time and put in the work it doesn't have to be a botched science experiment very true very true you think you'll ever step on stage again man never say never my friend never say never yeah. however now i'm, I'm like in the it. master's category now it's weird how all of a sudden it's all of a sudden. I was how old are you? I'm I'm just gonna put you on the spot here. How old are you? Uh, thirty five, about to be thirty six. Man, you don't look at them, man. I mean you, you get you you'd be competitive for sure, I have no doubt. Yeah, never say never. You know, I um the turning point for me really it was it was shortly after I started the ketogenic diet, just because I was already somewhat battling with well, what am I gonna do, you know, if if I do become pro? And of course I well, I can't speak for everyone, but most bodybuilders, whether you're natural or if you're enhanced, you know, and have, you know, so be it, you know, I really don't care if, you know, like some of my best friends, you know, like in the, the circle that I ran in, all my friends were enhanced, my training partners, you name it, but it's like mm -hmm. I was doing it because ultimately I wanted to be an IFBB pro. And it probably didn't help that my wife became an IFBB pro. And I had been in the sport like significantly longer than her. And here she does, you know, here she comes and, you know, she, she starts and then a handful of years later, she becomes pro. But in 2013, 2014, my game plan then was, of course, I was taking two years off to come back, you know, bigger and leaner in 2015 for Team Universe, in the, um, the light heavyweight division, which is, that's a drug tested show. And of course, some people, they might argue, it's like, oh, there's hacks, this and that, but I truly was um, um, a, a natural athlete, but I was like, well, if I do get my pro card, like, what am I going to do with it? You know? And at the time I was already kind of somewhat stepping away from the coaching community. And oftentimes that's a platform to, you know, make your coaching business a little bit better. It's like a perfect platform, especially when you have that prestigious title in front of it. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, 
you know, 5'11", you know, absolutely ripped out of my mind, you know, like five, six percent body fat, like true five, six percent body fat. And I weigh 195 pounds. Like, what am I going to do? And and back then I had a little bit of an ego. I was like, you know, I don't want to do men's physique. This was before classic physique had, um, was in existence yet. And at the same time, I had started doing jujitsu. And the turning point for me was I got submitted four times in a minute by a 17-year-old kid that I weighed 80 pounds more than. And I don't know why that was like such an eye-opening epiphany for me. I was just like, well, what matters most like in, in a real-life situation? And I was like, maybe I don't necessarily care about, you know, being the biggest and the leanest guy. Or and like in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to be the next Skip LaCour or, or something like that, the best, you know, natural bodybuilder to existence, in my opinion. And um, yeah, that was kind of like the pivotal point for me, but never say never. Who knows? Maybe in another few years, I'll, you know, I'll get a, an itch and I'll have the need to scratch and get back on stage. That's cool, man. I, I like it. It's interesting to, for me to hear why people compete, why they, they don't compete. It's just, for me, I mean, the reason I compete is just simply a great opportunity for me to figure out who I am on a deeper level. Like every time I go through a competition prep, it's such a mind game for me that I just learn so much more about myself with every prep that I do. Um, that's my motivations behind it. But but a lot of people, like you're, actually, you're absolutely right about the, the pro card. Like a lot of people, you know, they put the pro card on this pedestal and they just assume that when they get it, all their problems will be solved. Where in reality, I mean, especially in the natural bodybuilding realm, it really means nothing. I mean, IFPB pro title, I think probably holds a lot more weight, but like the natural pro title, I mean, that's not really going to get you anything from a monetary perspective. Yeah. If, if anything, you state whatever organization that you're with and more times than not, people can be like, what is that? You know, they're, yeah, exactly. they're not necessarily know what it is. It's unfortunate there's so little exposure for natural bodybuilding, but you know, it all, I mean, it all goes back to money. People want to pay to see the freaks, you know, you're not going to get that if you're truly natural. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very true. And I like the point of what you said, and it's actually, it's one of the things that really attracted me to bodybuilding other than, you know, even still to this day, it's like, I, I still love going to the gym and I still love the act of physically lifting weight and, and whatnot. But for me, it always was very much so a spiritual journey, you know, whether I was deep in an off season trying to make improvements or if I was on the grind and, you know, in that caloric deficit, it was, it was an opportunity to, to really explore really what you're made out of, you know, so that statement completely resides with me. Absolutely. Well, man, get that itch again and it'd be cool to join you on stage. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure I give you a buzz if, if, the, if the opportunity uh, does surface. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Josh, man, it's been, it's been a pleasure. I can probably sit here and talk to you all day about mindset, but we'll have to say that for another podcast. Um, where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, probably the best platform is I don't, I'm not that active on the social platforms, but you can check me out on Instagram, jrfield12, um, LinkedIn. I've been a bit more active on LinkedIn lately, um, and then just my name, uh, Josh Field. Those are probably the the two best platforms. Awesome, awesome. Well, Josh, again, man, it's been a pleasure, and I will I'll be in touch for sure. You're going to KetoCon this year, right? Uh, right now, it's about ninety percent. Um, yeah, about ninety percent. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I will. See you then, hopefully, my, my man. That works, Robert. Thank you so much. Take care, bud. Bye-bye.